Hey guys, welcome back to the Foam Frat Podcast. Tyler and Brian Winchell here. Now we're going to talk about the Hamilton T1 for this episode because it is just such a specialized ventilator. So special. And we were just talking about our ventilator resume, if you will. It sounds like we both started off with the AutoVent, uh, moved to the Eagle Impact ventilator, and then I went to the Envy, which is a CareFusion ventilator, and he went to the LTV 1200, and then we both graduated to the Hamilton T1. That's the end of final promotion. (laughs) That's the final promotion. We're going to talk about pediatric ventilation, and I'll be honest, Brian's got way more experience than I do with this. Before I started working at LifeLink 3, I had zero experience ventilating children, unless it was with a BVM. Uh, We had a pediatric specialty team that would come down and pick up all the patients in our area. So if you had anybody, I'm talking even kids that were, you know, past puberty, they would still consider that a pediatric specialty transport and they would come and retrieve them and bring them out. And so I had zip when it came to pediatric ventilation experience. I bought a book when I started working at LifeLink on pediatric ventilation and I started reading it. And I don't know what I found out was that it's really not that different than adults. I just pretend they're like really sick ARDS patients and I'm dealing with like really small tidal volumes. And Brian, if you could sum up pediatric ventilation in one word, what would it be? Calm down. I know that's two words, but <laughs> I think, you know, when whenever you think about walking in on a pediatric vent case, starting with the human factors is absolutely the place to start. Because um, I'm the same as you. I started from a background of mostly adult pre-hospital and then learned on the job, just like you did. Our program is a little bit unique. We've, we do a transport volume, about 25% peds and neonates. And we've learned a lot over the years by, you know, having really sick patients and then messing it up and figuring out what we can do better. And getting the Hamilton ventilator was largely driven by the fact that we had such a high peds volume. But at the end of the day, when you come down to it, thinking about how you handle a ventilator patient that's a pediatric a lot, so many of the principles still apply that we learn at, about adult ventilation. And really, when you start doing critical care transport, learning mechanical ventilation is probably one of the biggest things that you have to learn that you didn't have in your toolbox before you came. Do you, do you think that's true? Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And I think it's interesting because, I mean, you and I, there's no hiding it. We're, you know, ventilator nerds. There's a bunch of us out there. And we can sit here and we can debate semantics, pressure versus volume, this mode, you know, this IDE ratio. Uh, But when you actually get on a transport, your brain goes into like a operational mode. Like, all right, I need to troubleshoot alarms. I need to troubleshoot the patient. I need to troubleshoot the staff. And a lot of those semantics and those details turn into what do I need to know right now? And that's kind of how I want to like preface and frame this part two is what do I need to know right now to possibly benefit this patient, not let them get any worse and get them from A to B as safe as possible. And that's what we're going to hit on. And I think that uh, the main, I don't know, the umbrella for all of this is really going to focus on just paying attention to dead space. And so when we talk about the Hamilton T1 and we're going out on a, a pediatric transport, usually we get the weight we're trying to decide whether we want to use like the adult circuit or the neonate circuit. So we got two different circuits. Brian, why don't you talk about those two circuits and how they differ? 
Yeah. So the two circuits have quite a bit of overlap. There's a neonatal circuit and then there is an adult pediatric circuit. And so the neonatal circuit really covers the age range up to a weight limit of about 34 kilograms. And then the adult pediatric circuit covers down to about three kilograms. So there's sort of a three to 35 kilogram overlap. As a rule of thumb, about 10 kilograms in down works much better with the neonatal circuit and 11 kilos and up works better with the adult PD circuit. If you have a patient that you know is going to have low tidal volumes and you're going to be fighting dead space and they're say 10, 11, 12, 15 kilos, air towards the smaller side just to eliminate as much of that dead space as possible if you're going to be running with lower tidal volumes with a lung protective strategy or something. But in in general, rule of thumb, 10 kilos and down neonate circuit, 11 and up adult PD circuit. Yeah, that that area of overlap was a little bit confusing to me when I first started here because I'm like, all right, well, if I go in with the adult circuit on, you know, I think my first kid I ventilated was 12 kilos. And I'm like, oh man, like that's all right. So that's two above where I would use the neonate circuit. But if I go in there with an adult circuit and I put it on and I start noticing that I'm like getting, you know, I'm retaining some CO2, they're rebreathing it. Then I got to take them off and bag them, switch circuits. And so I was like, oh man, I don't know which one to go with. And I was talking to you and there's some other points to do with the circuit other than just dead space. And we were talking about the weight of the flow sensor. And honestly, um, so I stuck with the adult circuit because it was 12 kilos. The tidal volume was a uh, higher, you know, I don't say higher, but the kid had healthy lungs. And I went with the adult circuit and I found myself having to hold up that circuit because I kept kind of bending that ET tube over and they were using yep. a, uh, Thomas tube tamer, Thomas tube holder. I always want to I say call Thomas. Thomas tube kinkers. I always want to call it Thomas the tube holder because of Thomas yes. the train. And I sound like a real idiot when I say it. But yeah, it kept kind of folding over that ET tube. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man, like this is, I probably should have put the pediatric or the neonate circuit on. And so that's something else to consider in the realm. I mean, the kid ventilated fine, uh, but when you start thinking about how could I have made this better, that was definitely a point that we reflected on. I thought, oh, that would possibly be a better idea. Yeah, that's a good point. If you look at the latest iteration of the flow sensor and the Y on the neonatal circuits, Hamilton has put a 90 degree elbow built into the Y. And so it's a lot less plastic hanging off the tube. Yeah, that's that's great. We decide we're going to use the adult or the neonate. And I, honestly, since you can go up to what is the tidal volume, like 300 is the max on the neonate. You could probably ventilate some adults with that. So I would say I would err on the caution of going to the neonate mode. Now, when we look at the neonate circuit, it's, you know, it's rigid. And my thought process and what I had always been formally taught was that there is a certain amount of volume loss in tubing compliance. And some books will say two mLs per centimeter of water pressure of your peak pressure. Uh, Some will say one mL. And so this was something that I'm like, all right, well, usually when I teach dead space, I teach everything distal to the flow sensor contributes to dead space. And I was working with one of our flight nurses, his name's Keith Velasky, super smart guy. And he said, you know, all right, so if everything distal to the flow sensor, then why are we teaching people that you lose volume with uh, tubing compliance? And I'm like, dude, that's a really, like, it's a really good point. It doesn't make sense to me. It's just like one of those laws, like, you know, they always say you're not allowed to drive with your lights on inside the car because it's illegal, but 
like nobody can find that rule anywhere. And so I'm like, all right, this must be something that when you are calibrating that circuit, it accounts for that. So you don't even have to worry about that. It's so small that it's not a factor. Has that been kind of your same experience? Part of the the magic of the Hamilton is their flow sensor design. So whether you're using the neonatal circuit or the adult pediatric circuit, one of the things you have to do is calibrate the flow sensor when you put it on or before use. And so there's inside that little blue flow sensor that sits directly between the Y and the patient, it's physically measuring tidal volume going through there as opposed to other products that don't have that flow sensor don't don't have a way to physically measure volume. They can measure pressure and then estimate volume based on the pressure returns. But that flow sensor is incredibly accurate. So just really when you're talking about mechanical dead space, you're talking, it, it, to the best of my knowledge, from the why past the flow sensor to the patient is the dead space that we're really thinking about. So the flow sensor contributes to dead space slightly. The neonatal flow sensors. Uh, about a cc of dead space. The adult pediatric one is a little bit more than that. I haven't measured it recently. It's, it's like 10 cc's, but the flow sensor does an incredible job of of determining that so that you don't have to worry about your part of your equation doesn't even have anything to do with tubing compliance. All right. And I think that's a really good point. So we can kind of just squash that. So don't really worry about tubing compliance. And you couple that on with the Hamilton. <laughs> on the Hamilton T1. Yeah. So now my next point that I was like, oh, I don't know on my first pediatric ventilator call was uh, it's cold up here in Wisconsin. I know you guys don't really deal with that down in Texas much. And we were doing a, a flight with this kid, this 12 kilo kid. And my thought process was like, oh, we're going to be going in and out. Um, I want to try to keep that airway warm, right? I don't want them to dry out. And so I was debating whether I should keep the HME on or take it off. If you ask like, you know, a bunch of people in a room, everyone gives you their own opinion on what they think you should do. And uh, Eric quoted a study that we'll include in the show notes of this about the HMEs and how they actually, you know, without having one on for a certain period of time, it can have some effects on the airway. And so I was like, I'm going to keep it on because, you know, this kid, I want to try to keep them warm. And the tube, I mean, you know how the tube used to live up here in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You know how that, that circuit gets cold. I mean, it's, it does. it's freezing. And you want to try to keep some of that heat and moisture in. So what's your thought on the HME, Brian? It, this is the classic debate. If, if you pulled the room and then you took all the experienced people, they would all say throw it in the garbage as soon as you show up. Because it, it down the road presents problems in flight. I think the prudent approach is to say, hey, it is. there's an advantage to the HME whenever possible we can use it. But if you look at your HME, I think there's some things you got to figure out as to what HME you're carrying. Uh, the dead space contained in that HME is really important. A simple way for you to measure it is to occlude one side and then just take, say, a 60 cc syringe full of water and fill it all the way up and see how many mLs of water it takes. And that's roughly the amount of dead space it's adding. And boy, when you start stacking things together, you can end up with a lot of dead space really quick. So if you're sub 10 kilos, it's going to be really hard to find an HME that has a tiny amount of dead space. And we actually, for a while, carried one that was a tiny neonatal HME. But ironically, we found it it doesn't even really work with the way that the flow sensor works and the neonatal and tidal CO2 works because it was so compact, it wouldn't allow them to fit together. And so really, you're looking at something with about 10 cc's of dead space minimum. And I think it's going to be a, if you can use it, that's great. But if it's causing problems, and, and when I say problems, think through 
you've got a, a medium in there that's basically cardboard that you saturate with water. And the more that it's saturated, the more that it uh, increases resistance. So you can end up with sort of a resistive, a high resistance type patient that has a flow waveform that's not returning to baseline or high peak pressures. And that's time to get rid of it. Or if you end up with a lot of dead space and CO2 rebreathing that you can notice, that's another time to get rid of it. So it's a great tool, but don't be afraid to to get rid of it if you have problems. And then make sure you're putting yours on and that you've picked out the appropriate one for transport. Because if you look at the standard ones in the hospital, you're talking closer to 20 or 30 cc's of dead space. Let's go back to what you said if you're noticing problems, because you kind of briefly touched on it. But I think that that is so important with your best monitoring device when you are trying to figure out if you need to reduce dead space is your end tidal CO2 waveform. Is that correct? Would you feel the same way? Yeah, there's two things in the waveform you really want to look at. And and the first and most obvious is the baseline. So the portion of the end tidal CO2 waveform that should be the baseline or the isoelectric line, if you will, where during inhalation should all the way be down at zero. We've got several cases, and we'll put a blog post up on FoamFrat, um, of cases where that baseline elevates even up to 30, and the CO2 waveform then goes up to 60 beyond there. So the ba- it's not returning to baseline, and that's a sign of CO2 going in to the patient during inhalation, right? And so that's CO2 that's found in dead space getting pushed back in. The not quite as bad situation, but but can still cause problems is if you have some CO2 getting pushed in. And what this looks like is a little bit of a tail or a triangle that cuts into the baseline on the left side of it. And so that's a little bit of CO2 left in the HME or in the circuit getting pushed into the patient, and then it goes down to baseline, and then you get a normal breath. So we call it tailing, or it looks like a little triangle impinging on the baseline. Both of those are signs that you've got too much dead space, and it's really important to be watching for this. And what what the clinicians will usually complain of is they have hypercapnia and they have trouble reducing it, even if they're increasing rate and tidal volume, that they can't ditch this. And if you pull out the HME or you pull out all this dead space or inline suction or flex tubing and elbows, usually you can resolve it really quick. Now, I haven't seen the tailing until you uh, shared with me those images the other day, uh, but mine has been a elevation of the baseline. You know, when they're taking that breath in, that should be dropping and you should have no CO2 there. And if you see yeah, you that- should not be inhaling CO2 as a rule. <laughs> That's the point of this podcast. You know, we could right. Don't inhale CO2. I think of it when I explain dead space, like when I'm teaching mechanical ventilation, I think of like the snorkel, you know, because if you had a snorkel, they, they have to make it, you know, a certain height. Otherwise, you're going to rebreathe part of your own tidal volume. I mean, you still are going to rebreathe some of your own tidal volume, but you're still drawing in some more atmospheric air. Now, sure. if you were to extend that snorkel, you would eventually just be rebreathing all of that that CO2 in there. And so when you think of bias flow, and we did a, um, a podcast, it was like one of the first podcasts I ever mm-hmm. did on, on bias flow, that is circulating throughout the circuit, clearing that dead space. So you don't have to like breathe always back to the exhalation valve and, and suck all that in. Or uh, the Eagle vent had like an expiration valve, like real close to uh, where the tube would connect and you could exhale through there. Once you get past the flow sensor, you're circulating it. That's where the snorkel hits the air. Uh, But everything after that, everything distal uh, going towards the patient of the flow sensor is all contributing to that dead space. 
And so we'll put those pictures in the show notes. And uh, Brian's got a really good blog he's going to put up on Foam Frat, just showing those baselines because that's something so important to pay attention to. And if you are not keeping the end title CO2 on pediatric transfers, uh, you'll never see this. And what you're going to do is if you're trying to, well, I don't even know how you would know to increase the rate or what you would predicate or what you would base that off of. But if you start, if you have the end title CO2 on and you're like, oh, all right, normally when that happens on an adult, let's just increase the frequency. We'll turn up the respiratory rate. Why is that just going to make it worse, Brian? Well, that's a really interesting thought is respiratory rate in kids is not necessarily benign. And we think, you know, an infant normal respiratory rate 30 to 60, you don't want to be living at 60. You really need to be, we teach 40 and down because the more respiratory rate you have, the more dead space ventilation you have. So if you have a tidal volume of, let's just say 80 milliliters, and of that, you've got 15 milliliters of dead space. The more you increase respiratory rate, the more you increase that amount of dead space ventilation. So the ratio of dead space to alveolar ventilation didn't change when you increase respiratory rate. But if you increase the pressure control or increase the tidal volume, you're going to get more alveolar ventilation and the dead space ventilation remains constant. And when it comes to alveolar ventilation, you know that to oxygenate adequately, you really don't need a ton of ventilation on the oxygenation side. Uh, but when you look at the ventilation side, that's really what we're worried about. So uh, my point in saying this is that you can't use your pulse ox as, well, you know, the ventilator's working fine because my pulse ox is 100% because that is right. uh, not true. That's going to take a little bit longer to uh, start to change. Now, if you're rebreathing, you know, a ton. Yeah, you will see that drop. But if you see the pulse ox dropping, you're kind of behind the eight ball on that. All right. So let's move on to like our initial settings for a kid. So I typically use like, I don't know, six to eight cc's per kilo. Uh, but the Hamilton calculates that in when you put in uh, their height. Yeah, all of the ventilators have configuration settings. So your program can set up centimeters or inches. We use inches because we're in America. Um, we also set it up so that it starts at six per kilo. There's a lot of debate on cc's per kilo. And of course, PEDS has very little evidence or, or, or published evidence. If you look, I think it was in 2016, there was a consensus document put out on pediatric ARDS. And their consensus was tidal volumes between five and eight cc's per kilo. But really, the experts sort of are all over, like they expand this a little bit. There's some that think that, yes, there are times where we need to be down in the four per kilo. On the other hand, kids with with healthy lungs probably don't have a problem up higher close to 10 if you look at you know the arma trial which is what everybody's basing it on we're comparing 6 versus 12 but you know is 6 versus 10 going to be a detriment there's not a lot of pediatric literature on that so in general we stick between 5 and 8 um in watch really your your uh, plateau pressures or your peak airway pressures and trying to maintain them about 28 to 30 is, is more the concern that you're going to watch. We're really in a state of the science where it's continuing to evolve. If you look at the safety parameters that we're using, plateau pressures, peak airway pressures, everything's a surrogate for how much stretch you're actually putting on the lung parenchyma. And so we're all trying to figure out what's the deal. It is what's the right number. Not everybody can do, uh, you know, transesophageal pressures. So is, is it dangerous to have higher respiratory rates than we need? Is that causing more stretch or, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions. So I think right now staying in that target 
pip of 30 or less, keeping your title volumes generally between five and eight, but then not being afraid to go up to 10 if needed or down to four if needed, I think gives you the flexibility to sort of adapt the the modality to the patient as the science continues to evolve. If you're ventilating at a lower tidal volume and you're slowly increasing your respiratory rate to try to make up for that, you know, do you have like a cap that you're looking at? What are you basing your rate off of? Man, we don't have a hard stop. Honestly, it is nice when you set in the patient's weight or height. It it gives you a starting, a suggested starting respiratory rate, which is a really good starting place. If you look at the tables, it's a it's a good place to start. We don't have a hard stop on it. I think in general, no faster than 40 is a pretty good place to be if you're looking at patients that are two and three kilos and larger like what we do. If you're getting into the the smaller than two kilos, it, you're in a little bit of a different world where frequency is is looked upon differently. You know, another thing when you think about rate, I think that plays into this is when you think about obstructive patients and how low do you go? That was always a question that I had too, right? So you think of an adult patient that is severe asthma, we start with rates that are really low, like eight breaths a minute. Well, what would you do with a eight-year-old that has a severe asthma attack? And I think what you want to do here is look at your flow waveform. I can't emphasize understanding that flow waveform enough and say, when is that thing getting back to baseline? The flow waveform above the line is inhalation, below the line is exhalation, and that exhalation needs to all come out. So it needs to come back to baseline. And if it's not coming back to baseline, then we need to slow the rate down or possibly uh, shorten the eye time, although generally we've found pretty good success with a little bit longer eye times and the slower respiratory rates so that you give enough time for that breath to get in past that resistance as well. What we've, we've found with kids and asthmatic kids, sometimes there's baseline left on that flow waveform where it's, that exhalation has come all the way back to baseline and it's just hanging out waiting for that next breath. And if you have a hypercapnic patient, that's all free room for you to buy up. So that means increase that respiratory rate. You want that flow waveform returning to baseline and the next breath starting immediately after that. That means you're safe, you're not air trapping, but you've optimized the respiratory rate so that you're getting as much minute ventilation as you can out of that patient safely. That's such a good point. And if you go on the Hamilton website, you just go on Google, type in like Hamilton T1 simulator. Uh, they just came out with a new one for the C6, is it, I believe? Um, is it? I think it's the C6. It's, it's the hospital model. And they have a whole simulator on there. And you can learn how to bring up these waveforms. Something interesting that Kyle Dreesey and I did is we would take that simulator and we would make like a sick asthmatic or whatever, not let them see the patients, like hide the patient information and be like, all right, dude, you walk in and here's the ventilator. You know, what are yes, you going to do? Nice. And then and we would sit there and try to like, and then sometimes we'd like do it on two laptops and then we'd race like ASV to see if it could normalize the settings before beat we could the machine? beat the machine. Yeah. And it is so cool because uh, that's the time to do it. Not when you got a patient on it. If you want right. to bring up those waveforms, uh, you just tap the waveform screen. It'll pop up and then it'll tell you, ask you, do you want, you know, a loop? Do you want a waveform? What do you want? And uh, I think that when I'm monitoring it, I like to have that flow waveform. And then yes. I like to have, uh, sometimes I'll do like a pressure volume loop. It's really hard, man. That flow waveform is so important, I think, um, for these patients, especially the obstructive patients to make sure they're exhaling. 
Yeah, and you might see you had the HME on that uh, it's not returning to baseline because of that building up that resistance. And yeah, you might absolutely. find you can fix that by just uh, taking that HME off. All right. So when you are ventilating a kid, like if we're intubating them, you know, we're probably using a cuff tube. Uh, but we're not always the one putting the tube in. Sometimes mm-hmm. we're picking up these kids and uh, they don't have uh, ET tube with a cuff because I think it's still going around that you're not supposed to do that. It's unfortunate, but yeah, the industry <laughs> has changed. Everybody, we're using cuff tubes. But So um, just write that down, put it in the uh, like the lunchroom at the hospital or wherever you are, cuff tubes for everybody because uh, otherwise you run into these leak issues. Um, what are you doing for that? So... Leak is a really interesting thing. It was big enough for us that uh, that we put VLeak as a monitored parameter on our home screen. You can get to it in page two of the monitoring tab, and you can see VLeak. And you can also sort of estimate it looking at your VTI and VTE and seeing how different they are. VLeak's a little bit more accurate because it's averaging it across, I believe, about five breaths and giving you a percentage difference. But between pediatric patients and non-invasive patients, we found VLeak such an important parameter that we put it right on the home screen so we can all see it. And so whether you have a non-invasive patient and you see that leak climbing through 20%, you know it's time to tighten up the mask, adjust it, do some anxiolysis. With a pediatric patient, kind of the same idea. North of 10%, we start getting a little bit uncomfortable and looking at it. It totally depends on the patient. If you're requiring high levels of PEEP to ventilate this patient, if you need a good mean airway pressure, then you really need a minimal leak. If you don't, re- if it's healthy lungs, it's a trauma patient, something like that, it's not as critical. And you, if you're ventilating satisfactorily, and th- then you're probably fine. But so we don't have a hard cutoff. 10 to 20% and higher, you start wondering if you need to start looking at changing it out. We do carry six French um, bougies as well as 10 and 14 French for doing tube exchanges. It's never fun to do it on a hypoxic patient that needs a lot of mean airway pressure, but at least the uh, six French bougie helps it go a little bit quicker. On the topic of equipment, you can't really just use like an adult entitled CO2 and if you can't find your neonate one, like you got to have the actual stuff because of what we talked about with the dead space. Uh, but the other thing that we were talking about was uh, the tube holder, because the uh, Thomas, Thomas, the tube holder, <laughs> the Thomas, the tube holder, it, uh, when you clamp that down, I mean, on an a 7075, whatever, 802, it's really not an issue. Uh, but when you start dealing with these tiny little tubes, um, you can completely occlude the tube. Sure. Or it kinks over across the top of it, especially on those smaller tubes. Lots of things to think about to make sure that you kind of get things lined up. And there are things that line people can help influence decisions uh, in their program. So if you're working in a program, you're like, wow, we're transporting a lot of kids. These are things you want to make sure that you have lined out and you you have a, you, you can have a voice to take it up the chain and say, Hey, we're, we're transporting a lot of, a lot of kids and a lot of asthmatic kids or bronchial kids with bronchiolitis and RSV this winter. We're really struggling to nebulize with them. That was something we had. And so we moved to the aerogen nebulizer, which doesn't use a gas use electricity and a vibrating mesh to dump it in. And so you don't end up with messing up your flow waveforms and everything while you're nebulizing. Those are things you can run up the chain and say, Hey, here's some research and here's how it can benefit our pediatric populations. Yeah. Well, so that was going to be my next question is uh, you got to do a neb on a kid. And when you're using the Hamilton, um, I have always put the nebulizer on the side of the flow sensor going towards the vent. So not after the flow sensor. And that was the way that I was kind of told to do it. So that way it wouldn't change volumes. It wouldn't contribute to dead space, especially in a kid. 
Now, is that the same with the Aerogen? So when you think about the Hamilton circuits, um, there's two types of circuits, right? There's coaxial and collinear. And the difference would be like the neonate circuit is collinear, two tubes next to each other. Our adult PD circuit is coaxial. Is that how yours is? One tube inside the other? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really hard to put it in the inspiratory limb of that circuit. So what we do, we do this with our jet nebulizers, the gaseous ones, and we do it with the aerogens as well, is we actually put it, we put the nebulizer directly on the T is on the Hamilton in the inhalation port coming off the side of the Hamilton. And then that connects into the tubing and goes through there. And then the exhalation port goes out uh, and then we put a little flex tubing on there so that it fits. And the reason for this is that bias flow that Tyler mentioned slowly push it fills that inhalation circuit with nebulized medication during exhalation. And then you get a good bolus of that going in during inhalation. And then during exhalation, that gas isn't getting nebulized back down the exhalation port. It just sits there and sort of accumulates in the inhalation side. So that's why we put it directly on the vent so that we can isolate the inhalation leg. With the NV ventilator, we did the same thing just because otherwise my bias flow is washing out all the drug before they even got to the point of inhaling it. And right. so it made sense to put it down on that inspiratory limb. Now, when it comes to modes, all of them are pressure modes, but we have like volume targeted pressure mm -hmm. modes. What do you think is the best mode to start a kit off in? So this is something that's interesting. We've kind of been learning it as we've learned the Hamilton across the last three or four years that we've had them since transitioning from the Ravels. And initially we all lived in the PRVC mode, which is called CMV+. And I think the way that we've sort of fallen now, and this has been the collective you know, wisdom of our experienced people here is if you have a patient that has healthy lungs and let's say it's a kid that's eight years old, got kicked in the head by a horse and you just intubated them for airway protection. And it, that patient is great on CMV plus because you can set your target tidal volume. You can sort of forget it. You can do the rest of the things you need to do in transport, your fast exam, et cetera. You can kind of check down at the end tidal CO2, make sure it's where you want it, make a few tweaks. Great. If you have somebody with sick lungs, we're starting them in, in pressure mode, like a PCV plus. And this doesn't have anything to do with is one better than the other, because it's all in the, in the Hamilton. It's, it's just it, it, how the clinician interprets it and interacts with the dials. And with the Hamilton PRVC goes through an algorithm and escalates. And if you have somebody that's going to have sick lungs starting in, in a pressure control mode, lets you make a change in the very next breath, see how that worked out. And so you're, your reaction time is a lot quicker. So that's what we've moved to is if they're going to have sick lungs, we just start in PCV plus and use that. If you need sort of a set it and forget it mode, CMV plus, or honestly, ASV is pretty phenomenal as well. Those are probably your better modes for that situation. And I can't stress enough getting online and playing with that simulator and messing yes, around with it very and good. trying to recreate some alarms. And that's what I do when I am trying to learn a new piece of equipment is I get a list of all the possible alarms that you could get. And then I try to like reproduce each alarm. So then I know how to fix them if I see them pop up, because uh, that's really what we're doing is like troubleshooting the entire call or trying to stay ahead of that. So we don't have to troubleshoot, but that's, that's yep. kind of up from an operational standpoint. That's what we're looking at. And wrapping it back to human factors, where we started, Honestly, walking into it, the Hamilton makes pediatric ventilation incredibly easy. You have, I find we have way less alarms on kids than you do with adults because you're not dealing with 
obesity and compliance issues. Kids are generally fairly compliant. They're pretty healthy lungs, you know, and so the disease processes are simple to figure out. It makes it incredibly easy. And sometimes just walking in with confidence, knowing you've got a great piece of equipment, you've got great training, you've done a bunch of sims or online stuff. And, and to tell the mom and dad that like, hey, we transport lots and lots of kids. I tell almost every parent that and it gives them confidence and it gives me confidence. You know, it's it sort of it, it, it helps everybody get on the same page and take some of the stress out of the room. And that's what we should be is we should be really good at our jobs and know how to walk in and take a patient that and optimize their settings, get rid of dead space, tweak a few things and make things much better than where we found it.